Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 93 Hyborian War. Before we get into this week's topic, I wanted to hit on one of the subjects from the special release I did last weekend. I noted that one of our listeners, Larry Anderson, suggested we cover the top 10 modules of all time. Personally, I think that's a hell of an idea, and I want to run with it. But, as is my nature, I want to put a twist on it. I'd like to cover the top 10 or 20 modules as reported online or through various polls taken over the years, but I also want your thoughts on the best 10 or 20 modules of all time. Now, I know I'm going to primarily get D&D modules, either from TSR Wizards of the Coast or third party, so I had an additional thought, and that's to cover the best 10 or so standalone adventures written for other systems. And no, I wouldn't put Pathfinder in this category. Their first edition is basically D&D 3.75, so I'm inclined to include their adventures in with the D&D modules. But if you all object, hey, it's your show. I'll do it another way. Anyway, to do all this, I need your help. Let me know what your choices would be for the best modules. You don't have to separate by category because I'll do that myself when I put the episode or episodes together. And you're not limited in the number of modules you can name. You give me what you got, I'll figure out how it's going to work. You can reach me through DMs on the socials or by email. And as you know, I give those out at the end of every show. Plus, they're included in the episode information box for each show. You know, the box that tells you on whatever podcast service you use what the episode's about. Yeah, it should be there as well. Lastly, on this subject, I don't have a specific time frame in mind for the show, but I think if we give six to eight weeks for submissions, we should be able to get stuff in from everybody who wants to submit stuff. That being said, if submissions begin to slow to a trickle before that, I'll compile at least one episode and I'll give you a release date. So name your favorites and be a part of the creation of a role-playing history episode or two. And I'll figure out a way to thank everybody who submits their choices on the show. It'll probably be me just reading a list of your names, but maybe I can come up with something fancier. Maybe. And if you don't want your name mentioned, let me know. I won't be offended. I'm just the kind of guy that likes to give credit where the credit is due. Okay, so before we crank up the tour bus, I wanted to answer a question I got a couple of times this week, and that's why I'm going back into the play-by-mail bag for a show. I mean, didn't I pretty much cover the genre to death when we did the episode on it? The answer here is a simple one. Ever since that episode dropped, I've gotten several requests to do deeper dives on some of the more popular play-by-mail games than what I really did on the show. So I've been cherry-picking some games, checking to see if I can dig up enough information to do an entire show on them, and then working to get that research together. This happened to be the episode that got done first. So let's crank up that tour bus and get into today's topic. Now, like I said, I know we covered play-by-mail games in depth back when we did their own episode, but for our new listeners, I kind of feel obligated to at least summarize the concept of play-by-mail games, especially for those younger listeners who really weren't even a concept when the genre was at the height of its popularity. It needs to be understood that play-by-mail games have been around since before D&D was even created. For the most part, those early play-by-mail games were war games, based on the in-person miniature war games preferred by many a gamer in the pre-tabletop role-playing game era. And there was a good reason for its popularity. Game shops were a rare thing, if they existed at all, really before tabletop role-playing games kind of came into their own. 
Hobby shops, which were primarily what we'd call mom and pop establishments, were where you went to get your fix for your miniatures, your paints, your terrains, yada, yada, yada. And for many of us, it was pretty easy to find at least one family member you could convince to take you if you couldn't drive. And that's because the hobby shop covered pretty much every hobby you could think of, from needlepoint crocheting to model cars and trains. And for the record, getting my mom to take me was a breeze because she'd buy fake flowers or some more colored thread while I checked out some of the early tabletop role-playing games once they were released. Sorry, I kind of got off topic there for a minute. The point I was making is that it wasn't always possible to get all of the people who wanted to game together in the same room. And since this was well before the internet was a public thing, playing by email or Zoom wasn't even an option. So gamers were left with the only option there was, play by mail. Concept works like this. You got a referee, which is the name of the person who was basically in charge of the overall game. They'd lay out the ground rules for the game, then provide some sort of a setup kit for the players, which typically included a map of the battleground so players could keep track of everybody's moves, including their own. Once that was done, a battle order would be determined, and I've heard of dozens of different ways to do it. But regardless of the method used, things progressed the same way. The first person would make their move, mailing their decision to the referee, who would then note it and send out the move to the other players. Each player would then make their moves in succession with the results being sent out to each of the players in turn. And yeah, I know what you're thinking. That shit took a hell of a long time to play. Yes. Yes, it did. A good play-by-mail game could take years to complete. I mean, the, the U.S. Postal Service can only deliver mail so fast, and if you had players from different parts of the world playing, the time to get that information back and forth would be even longer. So it would take that much more time to get all the moves coordinated. However, when the professional genre was created by Flying Buffalo in 1970, there were no other options available. And let's not knock it. Play-by-mail games have managed to survive for more than 50 years. In fact, there are a number of games that are still being played today. Now, the technology is allowed for the speed of the game to be increased, no doubt. But that also means there's been a challenge to make the games more complex, since moves can be sent back and forth either by email or on a Discord server. So with nearly instantaneous results available, it only goes to reason you'd make the game a little bit sexier. For the record, there have been games of chess and Go played using this method, and I've even read online about a few games of Monopoly that have been played this way. So it's not just war games or tabletop role-playing games being played like this. But rather than continue to basically repeat an entire show I've already done, I'll direct you to our episode on tabletop games in the archives, and I'll get on with the subject at hand. Hyborian War was initially released by Reality Simulations, incorporated in 1985. It was the brainchild of Edward Schoonover, who got his inspiration for the game from Robert E. Howard's iconic character, Conan the Barbarian. As you might expect, this is a swords and sorcery role-playing game, with the difference being that instead of the players sitting together at the table, they're sitting at their own tables around the world. Schoonover has admitted on multiple occasions over the years that he'd read a lot of Howard's Conan stories over the years, and he made it a point to weave as much of that into the game when he created it as he could. By the way, the history of Robert E. Howard and the creation of Conan is a pretty interesting one in its own right. So if there's enough interest, I might break my rule about not covering non-tabletop role-playing game stuff on the show. Just saying. Now, Conan himself does appear in the game, but he's the wandering hero the players can employ to help them to solve a problem they need solved. However, he doesn't stay with one player for very long. 
Eventually, he'll get a better offer from somewhere else or a more interesting offer from somewhere else, and he'll go off to wandering again. For those diehard Conan fans out there, the game setting should sound familiar. The game takes place in the very universe created by Howard, and it takes place during the fictional Hyborian Age as created by Howard when he wrote the stories. According to an interview with Howard, which actually took place sometime in the 1920s or 30s, this age occurred at some point in time after the sinking of Atlantis in an age undreamed of. So some of the details Schoonover utilized from Howard, those were the landscapes, which are definitely rich and well-described in the stories. He also loved what he called the splendid cultures, which he stated in more than one interview over the years. One of the things that makes Hyborian War perfect for the play-by-mail genre are the large-scale battles Howard went into great detail of during his writings. There were literally massive armies fighting against each other, and they fought over kingdoms and empires, depending on your choice of words. Magic is also part of the setting, but it is not D&D magic. Wizards have some power, but not nearly as powerful spells as a high-level D&D wizard. What they've got, though, they're really good with. Now, obviously, Hyborian War is all about the courageous and heroic deeds. I mean, if you're anywhere near familiar with the Conan stories, pretty much everything he did fit into those two categories. Not all, I'll grant you, but most. So I've talked for a couple of minutes about the background of the game, but what exactly goes on in a game of Hyborian War? Okay, so first off, we need to understand that as many as 36 players can take part in a game of Hyborian War. That's because there are 36 available kingdoms available to play, and they come in three sizes, small, medium, and large. The reason for that is because there's a cost per turn to play the game, and that price is higher the larger your kingdom is. Yeah, I uh, I forgot to mention that a minute ago. For play-by-mail games, there's typically a cost per turn to play. I've seen them as low as 40 or 50 cents and as high as 5 to 10 bucks, depending on the game. Needless to say, if you can keep the costs lower and still be able to make money, your game will remain popular and be played for a whole lot longer. In addition to the 36 playable kingdoms, there's a number of kingdoms that are, for a lack of a better term, NPC kingdoms, which means they're run by the computer. And that's been pretty much the case since 1970, because as you'll remember from our play-by-mail episode, Flying Buffalo had a computer to help them run their games. Wasn't cheap, and it's safe to say the smartphones most of us have today are a thousand times more powerful, but it got the job done. The idea of Hyborian War is conquest and expansion. While that sounds like a pretty simple idea, you have to remember that everyone has the same plans, so that's where the conflict comes into play. There are options to attack by sea and by land, but there are also diplomatic possibilities that can be utilized, provided, of course, both sides are willing to do so. The units that players have to conduct their military actions with range from your standard infantry, cavalry, and archer units, all the way to units with mammoths, flying reptiles, and even the undead. Magic can also be used to beef up the units headed into battle. Oh, and some of those flying creatures can be used as mounts. So if you can put an archer onto a flying reptile, (laughs) there are basically two types of battles in the game. One is the standard open field battle like we've seen in movies like Lord of the Rings and Braveheart. Unit organization tends to be rather loose, though some strategy needs to be utilized so as to not have your weakest unit going up against the opposition's toughest. That being said, these battles tend to have a much larger number of troops in them than the other type of battle. That battle type is referred to as a set-piece battle. 
The set piece battle would be the type that takes place in a marsh or maybe in a region with lots of hills and valleys as opposed to the open field, which is literally an open field with no obstructions. For set piece battles, a lot of strategy is needed as the player needs to determine what units would work best for the combat, then needing to figure out how best to deploy those units for maximum effectiveness. And by that, I mean considering whether cavalry would work for a marsh set or whether you'd want to use archers in a heavy forest. You'd also need to decide how to configure your units since there needs to be some sort of organization to it. Think something along the lines of columns like we've seen in a ton of movies over the years. In a set piece battle, those columns will probably be smaller and set further apart. Now, it's also entirely possible that two sides will choose to not go to war. Instead, diplomacy can be utilized with the players discussing and hammering out the details of a peace treaty, which would most likely result with the loss of some territory for one side or the other. However, these types of deals also mean that both sides avoid the loss of units. There's also the option for a player to disrupt other alliances, which can slow down or even stop peace negotiations. That option typically results in combat, though sometimes it can be a three-way combat if either side of the broken negotiations figures out who the shit disturber was. Now, how do we go about taking our actions during the game? As I mentioned when I was covering the overall concepts of a play-by-mail game, players submit their moves by mail, or by email these days if they choose, and await the moves made by other players in the game. They also have the ability to request the mailing address or email address for up to two other players per turn, which allows them to work with those players to attempt peace negotiations or some sort of alliance for a certain length of time. Moves are submitted to RSI, who runs all Hyborian War games, and they run all the moves through the computer and inform the players of everyone else's moves and the results of those actions. The process then continues until the victory conditions for the game have been met. What exactly are the victory conditions? So a game of Hyborian War can end of one of two ways. Either the map is dominated by just a few players, or an Ice Age begins. Yes, Ice Ages are a thing in this game, and when one begins, the northernmost countries begin to fill the full effects, which drives their citizens, mostly barbarians, south. And they're given a large kingdom each to settle in, as well as the ability to move freely through the borders of all other kingdoms, whether they're friend or foe. At that point, the game continues until the glacier encroachment reaches an advanced stage. It should also be noted that each kingdom in the game has unique victory conditions of their own to meet. Some are based on wealth, while others include survival, minimal expansion, or domination of at least half the map. Needless to say, these unique conditions will cause players to be in conflict because it frequently means they're in competition for the same resources. And the winner of the game is the player with the highest rating, which is determined by the computer, of course. However, that might not be the player who's conquered the most territory. The ratings are based on optimal performance from the available starting resources and not by having the largest kingdom. Now, it's possible to have both, but there have been a number of occasions over the years that the player with the smallest kingdom has wound up being the overall winner due to having the most optimal performance in the game. Sucks if you're the one who took over half the map, but that's how the game works, and everyone is made aware of those possibilities before the game even begins. I should also note that games usually last from between 30 and 50 turns, though some games have gone shorter or longer depending on number of players and or the needs of the game itself. 
And as I've mentioned on more than one occasion, a turn can take many weeks, many months, or even a year to complete. So if you're going to play this game, you're going to need to be exceptionally patient and keep copious notes. While RSI created the game and has been running it since 1985, they've been smart enough to improve their tech as the technology available has improved. They've also listened to their players as they've implemented rules and policies suggested by their players over the years. The option to use email for move submissions is but one of the list of suggestions. The Times have also seen the creation of online fan sites that provide a multitude of reference materials on the game, as well as public forums for players to chat about the game itself. Needless to say, if you're looking into playing the game, these would be a great place to start, as the opportunity to learn as much as you can about the game is definitely available to you. We've come to the point in today's tour where it's time to talk about how well the game was received, as well as checking out some of the reviews. Now, since Hyborian War isn't like a book or tabletop role-playing game, the reviews are going to look a little bit different. So with that being said, let's get into it. When Hyborian War began in 1985, the play-by-mail community was generally pleased with it, giving it mostly positive reviews. The first magazine review I could find was in 1987 in Space Gamer Fantasy Gamer, though the reviewer's name wasn't given. The review noted that RSI deserved a lot of credit for delivering a game with a high level of quality, which RSI had promised when the game had been announced. That being said, though, the reviewer also noted that there were, quote, some minor improvements needed, end quote. In the August-September 1987 issue of Gaming Universal, Bud Link noted that the game was, quote, perhaps one of the finest demonstrations of creative writing in the rulebook and turn reports upon a continuing basis, end quote. These types of reviews continued through the 1980s and 90s. With the digital age and the adjustments made, the positive reviews have continued to roll in. In 2008, Hyborian War won the Origins Award for Best Play-By-Mail Game. For a game hitting its 38th anniversary this year, Hyborian War continues to adjust and adapt to the times, and it shows no signs of slowing down. In fact, RSI reports that during the pandemic, the number of players playing games increased, and to this point, that increase has held. I think that brings us to a good stopping point for today's tour, since we get to end on a really positive note. Next week, we dig deep into our game bag to check out Nightbane and Everway. In the meanwhile, I'd appreciate it if you check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. This week, we finally get our group to their destination, but whether they work on their retribution mission or their rescue mission is still a bit up in the air. See how we're going to resolve that in this week's show. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. Our email is badgmproductions at gmail.com. And the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's Nightbane and Everway. And I can tell you from my research, this is going to be one hell of an interesting show. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.